The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And the rest of us, we are going to turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. I'm sure that a number of you know who George Mueller was, or maybe you've heard his name, and you've heard it in his name attached to prayer, and it's for good reason. He was a man of prayer. He was known to be a man of prayer. He, he lived through nearly the entire 19th century, from 1805 to 1898, and he's well known for his Christian orphanages founded in Bristol, Bristol, England, that he managed and maintained without any direct requests for fundraising. He only prayed and relied upon God to provide the needs of the orphans and the workers and for himself. And there are remarkable stories of how God did provide all of their needs throughout the many years that they operated as an orphanage as God relied upon the Lord in prayer. And his biographer Richard Steer tells of a season where financially things were really tight in the orphanage from December 12, 1841 to April 12, 1842. During this period, the children were never knew of any kind of need. They always had food, they always had warm living conditions, and they always, always had clothing. And they didn't know of the difficulties. They were kept shielded from that. Nevertheless, the money and supplies were desperately thin. And on April 12th, Steer writes that, quote, the need had never been greater at the orphanage. Mueller went to the Lord in prayer, and this is what he said. Lord, pity us. You know we desperately need some oatmeal and some new pairs of shoes, money for the repair of old shoes and to replenish our stores, and some money for new clothes for the children, as well as a little money which is, in, which is needed for some of the lady helpers. Please send larger sums. Asking God to send more money, money that he hadn't directly asked for, but only pray to God for. That morning, an envelope arrived at the, uh, from the East Indies containing 100 pounds, which would have been a remarkable sum of money at that time, and it helped get them past that season of difficulty. And there are just a multitude of stories uh, from the life of George Mueller about this very thing. He would be praying, and what they needed would show up on the front door almost immediately or later that day. People would walk by the orphanage, wealthy people, and they'd be moved in their heart, not knowing why, and they'd go in and they'd donate. And that'd be immediately after Mueller had prayed for some need. So I tell you this story not to discuss the merits of fundraising or the demerits of fundraising, whether we should do it or whether we shouldn't. George Mueller made a decision himself to rely upon the Lord and live a life and manage the orphanages in such a way on pure faith without any fundraising because he wanted to show the world that God was a living God and that he answers those who trust in him and when they pray according to God's will and according to God's glory. He is a living God. And so he made that decision early in his life and that's why he entered into the, uh, managing the orphanages in this way. He was able to do that in good conscience. I tell you this story because George Mueller is the example of persevering, God-centered prayer. He continued in prayer throughout his whole life, even when times were incredibly difficult, and he trusted God to answer his requests. And he has stories of how he prayed for a certain group of friends to be saved, and they slowly were saved throughout the end of his life. And then his biographer adds that the last two that weren't saved during his life were uh, saved after he had Died, And so he believed that these, these people would be saved and he prayed God, to God throughout his life, persevering in those prayers because he was confident that those prayers were for the glory of God. But he did say this at the end of his life as he was exhorting the church to pray. He said, the great fault of the children of God is they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Oh, how good and gracious and condescending is the one with whom we have to do. He has given me unworthy as I am, immeasurably above all I had asked or thought. In light of this illustration from history, today we're going to go to the text of Scripture, and we're going to sit at Jesus' feet 
Because you might be thinking, wow, that is quite the statement. If we desire anything for God's glory, we should pray until we get it. That's just a man saying it. Well, Jesus is going to say something very similar in the text today. So we're going to sit at Jesus' feet and we're going to learn how to pray for God's glory and be encouraged to persevere in prayer. Because I think a lot of us need encouragement to persevere in prayer. So let's go now to our text. We come to this passage in Luke. We're not given real clear chronological markers. It's not immediately clear if this happened right after this episode with Martha and Mary. It's not incredibly important. Often the gospel writers will order things chronologically. This happened, and then after that, this happened, and after that, this happened. Sometimes they'll insert episodes from Jesus' life that are fitting a theme that the, uh, the writer is after, and this could be the case here. We're not really told if this has happened right after the episode with Mary, Mary and Martha. And it's not really that important, given that the authors of the Gospels will often insert important aspects of the life of Christ uh, in that don't have a chronological order of the coming right after the immediate episode. It just says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And this was his pattern. One thing I want to do. One one thing I want to say about this particular version of what we've called the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer. You could call them either one. This is taught to the disciples. It's taught by the Lord. You can call it either one. Is that it is slightly different than the version that you have in Matthew. And given the way Matthew's was given, is given in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Given the way this. Given the way this one is. Given by a request of a disciple, I take this to be actually two separate occasions when Jesus taught this prayer. And there's nothing wrong with that either. If this is the way that his disciples were to pray, then it makes sense that Jesus would have repeated this more than once with his disciples. And that would explain the the differences between the two versions. There's slight differences, but there are differences. Anyway, I believe Matthew and Luke are recording two separate occasions where Jesus has taught his disciples how to pray. And perhaps this disciple who is asking him for counsel may have not been there at the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's why he's requesting help in this regard. So in today's passage, what I want to do is I want to sit at Jesus' feet so that he can describe for us, for his disciples and for us as his disciples today, seven vital characteristics of Christian prayer. And you might be thinking, seven? Derek, haven't you ever heard that you're only supposed to have three points in a sermon? Don't worry, we'll go quickly through these. We won't be camping out for 10 minutes on each. And we will end up with an encouragement to persevere in prayer. Now, the reason I call this Christian prayer, if you've noticed the title in the outline, Praying Like a Christian, the reason why I'm calling this Christian prayer is in order to distinguish it from all other kinds of prayer. A lot of people pray today. Jews pray. Muslims are encouraged to pray five times a day. In fact, if you're religious, you likely have prayer built into your religion at some level. The Roman Catholic Church encourages prayer, particularly praying the rosary. And if you didn't grow up Catholic like me, you may not know what the rosary is. It's just a set of beads. almost looks like a necklace. It might have a cross at the end. It's got several beads, and the beads stand for what you're supposed to pray for uh, or the way you're supposed to pray, the prayer you're supposed to offer. They're all fixed prayers. You pray the Hail Mary, which is a prayer to um, uh, Jesus' earthly mother, the Hail Mary full of grace. You may have heard that. You pray the Our Father, which is very close to the version of Matthew's uh, Lord's Prayer in Matthew. And then you pray the Glory Be, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit and so on. Okay, and the reason I know about that is because I was taught how to, how to pray the Rosary from K through 12 as I went to Catholic Church all of my young life. So you are taught how to pray in the Catholic Church. You are taught how to pray as a Muslim. You are taught how to pray as an Orthodox Jew. People of indigenous religions pray to their gods or to the Great Spirit. Hindus pray. Even folks who wouldn't call themselves religious but might call themselves spiritual, pray. And I just got on YouTube just because, you know, sometimes it's entertaining to type in, okay, uh, learning how to pray or praying as an atheist or something like that. And guess what you can find? All kinds of people pray regardless of their religious orientation. So what we have to do as we come to this text is distinguish Christian prayer from all other kinds of prayer. 
prayer is something that a lot of people from a lot of different religions or non-religions, incredibly enough, uh, participate in. And so we need to think carefully about what true Christian prayer is. God is deeply concerned about how we pray. He is deeply concerned. He is a personal God. He desires thoughtful, intentional, engaged prayer. Genuine communion with the living God is what we are intended to experience with our Lord. Matthew's version of this prayer, for example, right as Jesus is prefacing his instruction on how to pray, he says clearly that we are not to merely repeat mantras or throw religious-sounding language to the sky, hopefully hoping that God will hear it. God is not impressed or pleased by the mere use of many words or the thoughtless repetition of mantras. That actually is displeasing to God because he's a personal God who desires our thoughtfulness and our intentionality when we go to Him in prayer, speaking to Him. So what kind of prayer pleases God? How has the one true God instructed us to pray to Him? These are important questions. What should our prayer consist of? And what do I do when I feel feel like giving up on prayer? Jesus answers those very questions in today's Passage that Bob read for, uh, for us already, so I'm not going to read through it. We'll just walk through the text. Before I get to the text, however, I do want to say another thing about prayer in the Bible. What Jesus is not doing is uh, slavishly binding us to a set of fixed prayers, as though we must pray this way every single time we close our bedroom door, kneel at our bed, and pray. In fact, you didn't say anything about closing your door, kneeling at your bed, and praying. Maybe you want to kneel somewhere else. Maybe you don't want to kneel. Maybe you want to stand up. Maybe you want to lay on your bed. Okay, so we're not getting fixed into some sort of rigid thing here. And the reason we know that is because Jesus offers two different versions of the, the Lord's Prayer or of this prayer. So we're not bound to some sort of rigid, fixed thing here. There are also, there is also biblical precedent for offering up short little prayers like, Lord, help me, or God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or brief praises like, God, you are so good, or Father, you are so wonderful, things like that. The Psalms, for example, give us a multitude of examples of what faithful prayer may look like, right? We may... Pray short prayers of help or longer prayers of praise. We may lament before God many minutes or send up a short praise from whom all blessings flow. These are all legitimate prayers for Christians to pray, and the healthy Christian life will consist of all of these. But what Jesus is doing in our passage today is he's going to instruct his disciples on how to prioritize their prayer requests and persevere in prayer. Jesus is going to teach us how to prioritize our prayer requests and persevere in prayer. He's giving us a framework for our private prayers and that help us set our spiritual sights on what's most important. This is a set of truths and instructions that should shape our prayer, that should flavor our prayer life before God when we go before Him. So let's get our context. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. In the book of Luke, you find Jesus often by himself praying. The Son of God, God of very God, taking on human nature, now relying upon his Father in every way. Multitude of times in the book of Luke, you find Jesus praying. Luke 5, 15 through 16. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad in great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw, withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke six twelve. In these days he went up on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is right before he chose his disciples. Luke nine eighteen. And, and it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were, who were with him, and they asked him, and they asked him some questions, but he was there praying alone. That's Luke nine eighteen. Luke nine twenty nine. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And here again you find in Luke he is praying in a certain place. This was his pattern. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man, can we say that he was a man of prayer, a man of dependence upon his Father. He enjoyed spending time with his Father. He delighted in his Father through prayer. He sought his Father in prayer. And as he is praying, one of his 
disciples, it says, comes up to him after he was finished. So the disciple is polite, waits for him. Okay, he's done now, I think, and I'm going to step in. I'm going to ask him, not an off-topic question. I'm going to ask him actually how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus is now going to launch into a, a set of instructions to help his disciples pray. This is the mercy of Christ. This is the love of Christ. This is the tenderness of Christ. He wasn't like, you should know. You should be able to figure it out. We got, you got a bunch of psalms. You, you, you know, come on, you should be able to figure this out. That's not Jesus' approach at all. He's going to give them specific instruction. So let's look at what Jesus has to say to them and to us. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. So we want to say first that Christian prayer begins with the gospel. And you might be saying, I don't see the word gospel there. All I see is Father. That's exactly why we say Christian prayer begins with the gospel. Because only those who have trusted in Christ, who have been washed by the blood of Christ, who have been redeemed and regenerated by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ, can address God as their Father. By telling his disciples to appeal to God as their Father, he is indicating that they enjoy a special relationship with God that not everyone else gets to enjoy. See, Jesus was calling God his Father throughout his ministry, and this really irritated the religious leaders. And, and it was unique to Jesus because only in the Old Testament do you find just a handful of times I was able to find three, and there, three of them are in Isaiah, where Israel is referred to, or is, God is referred to as Israel's father. So Jesus steps on the scene and he's referring to God as his father. And the religious leaders didn't like this because they thought it was irreverent and because it implied that Jesus was equal to the father. But then he comes along and he says, not only do I have this special relationship with the father, but you do as well. Not because you are the son of God, but because you are adopted sons of God through the gospel. Only gospel-grounded prayer from a child of God will reach the ears of his or her father. So that is who God counts you as, as one of his children. You can go to him as a loving, heavenly father if you have trusted in Christ. He has adopted you into his family. It means that we have the privilege of going to a loving, tender, heavenly father who cares for us, and who has an eye upon us in a very special way. And this just gets brought home to me as a daddy myself. My uh, youngest, my daughter, my youngest had a ballet recital recently. She's five, and so they're up on stage. This is a bunch of five- and six-year-olds, you know, running around, calling it dancing. No, it was pretty good. <laughs> but, and it was cute, and, and all the other kids were cute, and it was great. But my eyes were fixed upon one girl on that stage, and it was Ellie. It's my daughter. It just—it just, it was natural. Just shh, there, that's all I'm watching. When Easton, when I go pick up Easton from school, and he's with a, a group of people or a group of kids, I've only got my eyes on one kid. The other kids are cute, sure, that's fine. But shh, right there, he is. There's my—it's my son. Or when Colton's hanging out with his buddies, climbing trees or doing whatever else he does, I—I've got my eye on him. I have a special affection and love and sight for my children that I do not share with all the other children at CBC or anybody anywhere else. Now, I think CBC has some of the cutest kids in all the Bay Area, okay? All right? But I've got, amen, brother. But I got a special eye on my kids, and that is what Christians experience with their Heavenly Father. You experience something that not all the world experiences. You have a relationship with the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. It's not the portion of everyone in the world. And it's the reason why you can, as Hebrews 4.16 uh, says, we can go to the, with confidence to the throne of grace. It says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? Because Christian prayer begins with the gospel, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ being adopted into God's family. Now we have a heavenly Father who loves us and has a special eye of affection upon us, ready to answer our prayers, hear our requests, give us what we need. 
And we see that in the simple word father. So address God as your father. It is the, the, the cry of the Christian heart, as Paul tells us, Abba, Father. But Christian prayer also honors God's holiness. Christian prayer honors God's holiness. You see this here in the phrase, hallowed be your name. Coupled with this warm, tender relationship that we enjoy with God is the reality that our Father is holy. He is infinitely pure and totally other. Nothing like us. He is transcendent. He is a self-existent creator. We are mere contingent creatures. He is the all-powerful Lord of the universe who brooks no rivals, who does all that he pleases, and he rules all over, over all that he has created. His will is never thwarted, and his promises never fail. So Jesus here instructs us to keep our Father's holiness at the forefront of our affections as we pray. Our Father is good, He is kind, He is merciful, and He is tender, but He is holy. And a healthy, spiritually healthy relationship will keep both of those together. Our Father is a holy Father. But Jesus is also instructing us here that God's name will be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. This is the cry of the heart. We want God's name to be hallowed throughout the world. And this is really the drift of the scripture, isn't it? That God's name will be hallowed among all the peoples. It really is the heartbeat of the believer. Listen to Isaiah 26, 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance, or the NIV translates it as renown or fame. Your name and your remembrance or renown or fame are the desire of our soul. Jesus is simply tapping into what Christians desire deep down inside of us. Is to see the glory of Christ exalted among the nations. The glory of our Father exalted among the nations. Christian prayer is flavored by a passion for the glory of God. And when our prayer, see, this is where it's so practical. When our prayer is flavored by a passion for the glory of God, you know what else will be flavored with a passion for the glory of God? Our lives will be. It will flow out into our lives, our conversation, our work. And so Christian prayer honors God's holiness. But Christian prayer also longs for God's kingdom. Look at the next phrase. Your kingdom come. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Christian prayer should also be characterized by a longing for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. The goal of redemption is God dwelling with his people on a new earth. The end game of redemption is not disembodied souls swimming in a heavens up here somewhere, but embodied people living in a new earth, resurrected, never to die. That is the end game, always dwelling with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. When you die in Christ, you'll go immediately to heaven. But that's not the end. The end is for you to be resurrected and for all eternity spend with God and your brothers and sisters in a new earth. And by looking forward and praying for that kingdom to come, we are saying that we want God to exercise his unhindered rule and reign over all creation and over his people. We want righteousness and holiness to be the air that we breathe. Aren't you looking forward to that time? When, as uh, Peter says in 2 Peter, it will be the place where righteousness dwells. I won't be sinning anymore against you, and you won't be sinning anymore against me, and no one will be sinning against us anymore, and no one will be sinning against God. It will be only righteousness and holiness. And Jesus is saying, long for that to come in your prayers. The anticipation of a coming future kingdom will also reorient our priorities, won't it? 
How easy it is, and I'm preaching to myself here, how easy it is to become comfortable in this life as though it is our final home. We fall into the rhythm of merely seeking our personal peace and prosperity. But Jesus' Jesus' words here in this anticipation of a coming kingdom helps recalibrate our lives. Am I now laboring in a way that will garner the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Am I prioritizing kingdom values in my public, personal, and private life? Am I preparing my friends and family for this coming kingdom? When our prayers are shaped by an eagerness for the kingdom, our lives will inevitably inevitably begin to be guided by kingdom priorities. So Christian prayer begins with the gospel. Christian prayer honors God's holiness. Christian prayer longs for God's kingdom. Next, Christian prayer asks for God's daily provision. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, isn't this an interesting and helpful balance from the Lord Jesus? We are to long for a coming future kingdom, but we are also to look to God to provide us with our daily needs. Now, it's, I think it's really easy in a, in, a fluid, in a very affluent economic setting to forget that we are utterly dependent upon God to meet even our basic needs and earthly provisions. Just consider for a moment a few things. Consider for a moment all that must transpire for us to receive our food. Just a thought experiment here with me. In order to sustain our ability to earn a living, God must keep 10,000, probably 10 million variables in place. The greater economy, which has its own set of variables, your present employer, your present employer's financial solvency, international markets, your skill and personal capacity to fulfill your role at work, and your personal health, which involves another massive set of variables within your own body. These are all pieces to an incomprehensible puzzle that must fit together in order for you to just earn your living. And then another set of infinitely complex variables must remain in balance in order for you to use what you've earned at your job to then purchase the food that you need. Food manufacturers need a multitude of ingredients and materials from all over the world to prepare and package your food, and distribution must be coordinated on a global and local scale. And the pandemic has shown us quite clearly, given us a glimpse into how easily it is for the world supply chain to be disrupted so that it it hinders the ingredients from making their way where the food is prepared and how quickly distribution logistics can be upended. You might be thinking, well, I'll just go and grow my own stuff in the backyard. Yeah, where are you going to get the materials to actually do that? Don't think for one moment that this complex web of supply, production, and distribution isn't sustained by the grace of God. So pray for your daily provision. Pray for your daily bread. When we consistently neglect to pray and ask God to provide for our needs, we really are being presumptuous and showing that we really don't have an idea all that's going on and all that must go on in order for God to bring us what we need. Prayer for our daily provisions honors God as our provider and reminds us of our total dependence upon Him. So even in an affluent setting, we should be regularly praying that God would meet our needs and thanking Him when He does. This is all part of Christian prayer. And it balances, it's that perfect balance of eagerly anticipating that future kingdom. But Christian prayer also seeks God's forgiveness. It also seeks God's forgiveness. We just noted that prayer begins with the gospel. Christian prayer begins with the gospel. If you've believed in Christ, all your sins have been forgiven from a judicial sense. You might be wondering, why would Christian prayer be characterized by seeking God's forgiveness if all my sins have been forgiven? They have been forgiven in a judicial sense. Colossians 3, or Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. All of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. Every one. You now stand before the Lord as though you have fully completed and fulfilled everything His law requires because Christ has in your place. What Luke is talking about here is that daily experience and sense of God's forgiveness of our daily sins. 
And this, is, this all ties together with, with this idea that we are completely forgiven by God in a judicial sense. He'll never cast us out of His sight. Nevertheless, we do have sin that can hinder our communion with Him. And this is why John says in 1 John, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, that is, continually be confessing our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our daily walk with the Lord, keeping our conscience clean. We've sinned. We know we're not condemned to hell for that sin because Christ has borne that sin for us legally, but we still have sin that we need to confess to our Father so that our relationship remains unhindered. This is the daily work of the Christian, confession and repentance and cleansing. But notice what he says here in verse 4. He says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Does this mean that God gives, forgives our sins on the basis of us forgiving others? Well, no, it can't mean that because we know that our forgiveness is grounded in Christ alone. There's no work that we can do in order to get forgiveness from God. So that's not what this means here. Verse Uh, 5 of Romans chapter 4, to the one who does not work. That's any work. Insert any work into that phrase that you would think of. No work is what justifies us, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And it's to that person that it is counted righteousness. We are justified before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. But here's what's vital. Jesus' point is that we won't enjoy God's daily forgiveness and cleansing from our sin if we are unwilling to forgive others. If we are harboring unforgiveness, we won't experience that daily forgiveness from God. And I don't think we realize how important this is and how, how, how much anger and bitterness in an unforgiving spirit toward our fellow image bearers creates a distance between us and God. I, just, I don't know if we're aware of that. You might be feeling far from the Lord. You might not be sensing His forgiveness in your life. Just consider for a moment, are you storing up anger and bitterness and unforgiveness towards other people, other fellow image bearers? That will keep you at a distance with God. If you're doing that, if that's something you're cultivating, you will not experience the freeing joy of daily forgiveness from God. And that's a, that is a, a message to Christians, Okay. We need to repent, and, and, and if you are experiencing that, you need to ask yourself, is this the cause? Am I, if I, am I experiencing distance from God? And if so, is this the possible cause? I don't know if we've thought about that enough in connection with our walk with the Lord. It's also important to say here, though, that a professing Christian can have no claim to be forgiven if they are characterized. We're not talking about Issues and areas where we are, have a friend here and there where we are unwilling to forgive and we're having trouble forgiving. Someone whose life is characterized by an unforgiving spirit will have a hard time claiming that they have experienced the life-giving, burden-lifting forgiveness from God. How can we claim that? How can we claim that we've experienced this life-giving, burden-lifting forgiveness from God if we are characterized by an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit is certainly a sign of unbelief. Jesus is telling us here that repentance and forgiveness must flavor our prayer life. Jesus would say elsewhere, when you stand praying, forgive. Why? Because your prayers will be hindered, your heart, your intimate communion with God will be hindered inasmuch as you are storing bitterness and unforgiveness towards others. It's axiomatic. You can't escape it. You can't, you can't hold on to that grudge and that unforgiveness and that bitterness and try to get close to God. You'll just find that it can't happen. Uh, repentance and forgiveness must flavor our prayer life, seeking the Lord's forgiveness and consistently and constantly clearing uh, our relationships of any lack of forgiveness. And then next... Christian prayer requests God's spiritual protection. It requests God's spiritual protection. This is, a, a, I think, a very gracious reminder from the Lord Jesus. The Christian life is not a life of spiritual bravado or self-confidence in the space, face of spiritual danger. 
That's not the Christian life. As though we're handling this in our own strength and our own ability. Beware if you ever get to the point where you're so spiritually mature that you don't think you need God's day after day, moment after moment care. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. That doesn't change this side of eternity. We also carry within us indwelling sin. There's temptation all around us. So we need God's daily, even moment-by-moment protection from temptation. And this doesn't mean that you won't ever face temptation. It's not this, you pray this and you believe this. This doesn't mean that you're never going to face temptation. But what it does mean is that you'll be relying on God's kind providence and His promise to provide you with a way of escape. And this is precisely what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, there, 10, 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So let us pray daily for deliverance from temptation. It really is a gracious word from the Lord Jesus to remind us that we are always sheep always in need of his care never so mature that we can fend off temptation on our own that is a foolish and proud place to be so christian prayer begins with the gospel it honors god's holiness it longs for god's kingdom it asks for god's daily provision it seeks god's forgiveness it requests god's spiritual protection and now finally it perseveres it perseveres christian prayer perseveres how By remembering God's generous character. We don't persevere in prayer like anything else in the Christian life by mere willpower or gritting our teeth. That's not how we persevere. Not in any other aspect of the Christian life and not in prayer. We persevere in prayer by being reminded of God's generous and gracious character. And it's a fitting way to end some instruction on prayer with an encouragement to persevere, isn't it? Because we are so easily tempted to leave off prayer. I know I am. Diligent, faithful prayer is hard work. It just is. New Testament epistles describe prayer as laboring, working. It's just hard. Tiredness, distraction, desires for other things creep in and interrupt and dilute our prayer time. I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe y'all are great at praying. Always consistent and diligent and faithful and focused and never thinking about lunch or that last Netflix thing you watched or the coffee that you need to drink or whatever. But not only that, you add to that the reality that we see some of our prayers simply not being answered. Or at least not answered in the way we would like or think they should be. We may be also tempted to leave off prayer because we don't think it accomplishes anything. This is one of Satan's main strategies in your life, so be aware of it. The underlying thought is better to be productive with my hands and activity and create things with results I can see now than rather go to God in prayer. He will lead us astray, especially in a society that so prizes productivity to leave off prayer. But this is folly. If God is the infinite creator who possesses infinite wisdom and has infinite resources at his disposal and his will cannot be thwarted, the most productive thing you can do in the day is pray to God. So Jesus is going to encourage his disciples to keep on praying. And like he so often does, he's going to provide us with a rich and even humorous illustration to illustrate his father's generous character. What's the setting? Well, a man has just arrived at a friend's house who's been on a journey. And the host has nothing to give him, which would have been a disaster in this setting. Hospitality is very important in this, at this time and in this Jewish culture. And so Jesus says, and he said to them, Which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. This is not a good situation. Right? So it's late. The, he had gotten in late, and so now it's midnight, and people are asleep, right? And you, you, you need something to set before this person, because if you don't, 
it's not going to look good. It's not going to be good. You so prize hospitality. You don't know what he's going to think. You don't know what the little town's going to think of you who didn't provide for this person. And so you've got to go over to your other friend's house and knock on the door and say, I need three loaves of bread, which is probably what you would have served one person. So this is a one person serving three loaves of bread. But the response is pretty natural here. The answer comes from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's a, I mean, that's a, let's admit, that's a natural response, all right? I mean, Austin is one of the most gracious and gregarious people I've ever met in my life. Generous, happy all the time, always willing to help, always ready to help, always ready to say yes. And I just can guess, if I knock at his door at midnight... After a long time of trying to put the kids down and being tired and not getting the coffee and all this stuff, and it's just, he's not going to be real pleased with me. No way. See? And that's just, and who could fault him, right? It's like, yeah, Derek. In this setting, though, I couldn't, they couldn't run to a 24-hour Safeway. This was the only option. And it's really tough because, you know, in modern times, we, we have kids in their own bedrooms. Kids have their own rooms. I mean, imagine that. It wasn't always that way, believe it or not. And in this time, in these smaller homes, you likely would have had just one big room where everybody slept, and everybody slept in one bed. So you got, you got Austin and Emily and Laura and Lukey in that one bed, and here I come. And so Austin's going to have to get up, and if he does, you know what's going to happen? Everybody in that bed's waking up. And putting kids back down, well... Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know how it's going to go. So similar situation right here. This person does not want to get up and give the request. But why will he give the request? I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. So it's not on the basis of friendship anymore, right? That's not the reason why he's going to give him anything. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. He will not stop requesting, i got to get him out of here. He simply wants to end the encounter. He's not going to do it on the basis of friendship. As much as Austin loves me, he just wants me out of there. He wants to satisfy the request and end the encounter. That's what's happening. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that God is like this man in bed who will finally be nudged to action if you just ask him enough. That's not at all what he's doing here. He's making a lesser to a greater argument. If a friend will give you what you need, if you simply ask him enough and keep bugging him until he gives in, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfect, gracious, kind, and always available, give you what is good? This sinful man was willing to get up and get out of bed and give this man Give his friend some bread. Will not your perfect heavenly father, who doesn't sleep or slumber, by the way, give you what you need and provide you with every good thing? That's the connection that his disciples should be making. It's the connection he wants us to make. He is encouraging us to be impudent, so to speak, when it comes to praying. Christians, here it is. Can we say Christians should have a kind of holy stubbornness when they are praying according to the will of God? A holy stubbornness that will not stop praying when you are praying according to the will of God. If you are praying according to the will of God and praying for the right things, do not stop praying. Knock down the door. Because your Father is infinitely good. Infinitely better than the sinful man will get out of his bed simply to meet the request and stop the encounter. Jesus gives us massive promises to this end. Listen to what he says. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open to you. These are extravagant promises. These promises are intended very specifically and clearly to motivate you to keep praying. Jesus continues to kindle our desire to keep praying by making this lesser to greater argument even clearer. He's going to further illustrate it. He says, 
for what father among you, now he's going to kind of stir up their imagination a little bit, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And the, the fathers in that group would have been like, well, none of us would do that. That's, that's, that's a horrible thing. Why would you, a child ask for what's good, give him something that's bad and could even hurt him or even kill him? He goes on. If you then who are evil know how much to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is appealing to the natural inclinations of most fathers. Now, yes, we... There are such things as abusive dads in the world, of, co- of course, but most dads, regardless of their religious orientation, don't respond to their child's request for something good with something downright evil and harmful, like a serpent in place of a, of a uh, fish or a scorpion in place of an egg. So dads would be like, yeah, none of us would do that. And so Jesus uses this natural response of a father to highlight the goodness of their heavenly father. Although these dads have a natural tendency to give what is good to their children, they still are evil themselves. Their inclination to give good things to their children, this is just a leftover vestige of their original creation in the image of God. Just think then what your heavenly Father must be like who is only goodness. If a sinful father knows how to give a good gift to his child, when that goodness, that desire for good is a mere vestige of him being made in the image of God, how much more is your father who is infinite goodness ready and willing to pour out upon his children every good thing? That's the point that Jesus is making. It's the lesser to a greater argument. What kind of inclination does God have from his heart, you might say, Towards his children, nothing but goodness flows from your heavenly Father. There's not a taint in him. Therefore, disciples, let your heart be couraged. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the God of infinite, unsoiled, untarnished, pure goodness give good gifts to his children? That's the ground for our, uh, for our persevering in prayer. The character of God, the generous character of God. Now this last part, it's vital to keep in mind, to remember that these promises are rooted in the assumption that we are seeking and asking and knocking and praying for good things. This is not a blank check that guarantees that whatever you ask for, you're going to get from God. That's not at all what Jesus is suggesting here. How do we know that? Because Jesus ties this asking to spiritual priorities in verse 13 and how the Father is happy to give the Holy Spirit to us. And because this instruction on persevering in prayer is linked to the previous instruction on prayer that he just gave us. Remember what we said, it begins with the gospel, it honors God's holiness, it longs for God's kingdom, it asks for our daily provisions, it seeks God's forgiveness, it asks for God's spiritual protection. So this asking and seeking and knocking that God, that Jesus promises to be answered is grounded in praying and seeking for truly good things. What is God ready to lavish upon his children? Let me give you a few thoughts. He is ready to lavish upon his children the blessings of his Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 13, which include intimate fellowship with Christ, assurance of salvation, power to put sin to death in your life, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He loves to lavish uh, discernment upon his children that they be able to see between truth and error and embrace what is good and abhor what is evil. He loves to lavish spiritual growth and maturity that his name might be honored and glorified throughout the nations. He loves to lavish an understanding of his word upon his people so that they might see and behold him and his glory and his beauty in his word. He loves to pour out courage and boldness in sharing the truth upon his people. These are the things that God loves to lavish upon his people. God is ready to answer requests for the furtherance of his kingdom, the salvation of many people, the building of his church, the spiritual growth of your fellow church members. 
the exaltation of Jesus Christ among the nations through missions. He is ready to provide for your daily needs, to give you a constant sense of your forgiveness of sins and to protect you from temptation. To name a few. Jesus is offering us deep encouragement to keep praying for these things. God in his infinite goodness is ready to pray or ready to pour out these good gifts upon his people. So my encouragement from this text is the encouragement that Jesus is giving you. Keep praying. I've been a Christian for 23 years and I know that it's so easy to become discouraged and to leave off prayer. And Satan would love for you to become disillusioned with prayer and for you to set it aside as though it were a waste of time. I tell you what, this passage has really encouraged me even this week. I have several friends from high school and from college, friends whom I love, very few of which know Jesus Christ. And I just have a renewed confidence that God is going to save many of them and I'm going to continue to pray. Why? Because it's to the glory of God that he saves sinners. And so I will continue to pray. And we must fight the onslaught of Satan's lies. He will, as you walk out of here today, he will tempt you to think that it is a waste of time to pray. And we must go back to this passage to fight that onslaught of lies. Listen to the promises that Jesus offers. To the one who seeks will find. The words of Jesus are intended to rekindle our passion for prayer and to set our hearts on the right priorities so that we can bank on these lavish promises. God calls us to pray. Christ instructs us to pray. We have promises that God will answer our prayers. We know that God is infinitely good and loves to give good gifts to his children. So brothers and sisters, keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, and keep asking. Let's pray now together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your holiness. You are truly holy, infinitely pure. We thank you for the gospel that washes us from all sin, that we might go before you. We ask that you would continue to provide for our needs. We ask that your kingdom would come even soon, Lord. We pray that you would forgive us of our daily sins. Help us to never store up any unforgiveness towards others that we might experience the fullness of your forgiveness in a daily way with you. God, we pray that you would not lead us into any temptation, that you guard us from temptation in the wiles of the devil. And God, would you encourage us to keep praying to you, to keep looking to you, to trust you, to do amazing, wonderfully more than we could ever ask or think. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.